Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 27th of February 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Now, we love our city of Hong Kong, but our storytellers come from all over the world. Today, as we walk the safe and comfortable streets of Hong Kong, we'll be listening to Gina's story about the slightly less forgiving streets of Moscow from 20 years ago. After Gina's story, we'll hear another story about Russia, this time from Hillary. But before we get to this week's stories, we would like to extend a hearty thanks to our loyal hometown listeners in Hong Kong. You are the best. Listening hugs go out to listeners around the world, too, especially those listening in Shah Alam in Malaysia, Durban in South Africa, and Yangon in Myanmar. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our storytellers are getting ready for the February show tonight, where they will be getting up on stage and telling stories with the theme of Direction Unknown. These are stories about lost loves, unfamiliar surroundings, and even an artistic journey. Our live shows are always filled with interesting tales. If you have a story that you want to tell, go to hongkongstories.com to find out our next meetup and try it out. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our November 2018 show, which was part of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival. Here is Gina. Year 1999, Moscow, Russia. Difficult year. It was the first year the city was faced with new political realities it had not had to face in the past. Terrorist attacks, back to back. One in April, two in August, then in September. Desperate times called for desperate measures. In an attempt to get the situation under control, Moscow government instituted a process that authorized local police to stop anybody on the streets they subjectively deemed suspicious and ask for their documents. The consequences of not having the said documents with you or having something not to the liking of the police officers in your documents was not discussed. It could have been anything. You could be sent to Russian prison, Siberia, gulags, who knows? I mean, they said they ceased to exist, but who really knows? Best thing, do not look suspicious. Don't get stopped. My old American husband, Todd, born and raised in a peaceful small town in New Jersey, came to live with me in Moscow on a cold winter of 1999, soon after we got married. Without a word in Russian, and right after graduating from university, he landed the super prestigious job in Moscow. He wasn't exactly on the roster, though. For tax reasons, he was explained. And his visa situation wasn't exactly sorted out either. For the same reason, it was complicated. But who the hell cared? He was paid one full backpack of rubles, tightly packed. Roughly once a month. On average, about once a month, we never knew exactly when or if at all, but whenever he did, it was a joyous occasion, a reason to celebrate. So one of these celebrations, obviously first backpack safely tucked under the mattress, 
So one of these celebrations, we partied until we just could not party any longer and it was time to go home. So we get in a taxi. And when I say taxi, I use the term loosely, just get to the curb and hope for the best. So we get in that car and we start driving and we get pulled over by a cop car. We were deemed suspicious and we got pulled over. So the hitchhiking arrangement was not questioned. That's just a normal course of business. But police officers did curiously notice Todd's blue passport with silver letters going across, United States of America. They flipped through the pages and looked him right in the eye. So, where is your visa then, hmm? Todd looked at them. He obviously did not understand the question. He was deemed suspicious. He got stopped. He looked at me, and the reflection of his eyes, I saw the terrifying images of dying in the Russian prison. So I jump right in. Well, you know, his documents, it's, it's in the process. It's in the work. Right, I see. So he's been illegal here in Moscow for what, like six months now? Oh, no, 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 you don't understand. It, it's not like that, sweetheart. We don't care. His documents, not okay. He's coming with us. Well, if he's coming with you, that I'm coming with you too. That was the best thing I could think of at the time. Okay, sure. <laughs> Hop on in. So we get in the cop car. They start driving. It's middle of the night, pitch black. Not a single soul around. I look at Todd. He is completely frozen, terrified. And, I mean, he's been through stuff. He's been through the terrorist attacks in Moscow happening right around him. And now, he was in the back of this Russian cop car, driven around in the middle of the deep dark night behind some empty parking lots and abandoned train tracks. Oh, no. He wasn't going to die in the Russian prison. He was going to die right there and then. Oh, my God, God Almighty. So, here's what we're going to do. He's going to the station now, and he's going to stay there till Monday. It's Friday night through the weekend. Boss not here. Actually, no. He's going to stay there indefinitely. Unless... We can resolve the situation in another way. Oh, there is another way? Sweetheart, there is always another way. <laughs> but could get expensive for the American. Right, okay, so how expensive could it be, I'm thinking to myself. How expensive could it be for us to get out of Gulag? Um, Let's think here. So we have the backpack of rubles under the mattress, so we can give that to them right away. My mom might have some more saved. We can ask her for help. Todd's parents in peaceful New Jersey, well, that's not going to help us. It's Moscow 1999. We didn't have a bank account to receive any wires. Shoot, what if we just don't have enough money? So, sweetheart, how much money do you have with you now? Oh, 
I look at my wallet, I have 500 rubles, about 10 US dollars equivalent. <laughs> oh, okay, 500 rubles. <laughs> 500 rubles it is, you're free to go right here, right now. <laughs> what do you mean right here, right now? Go, right here, right now, you can go. But where are we going to go right here, right now? We're in the middle of the deep, dark night behind some empty parking lots and abandoned train tracks. We need at least some money to somehow get home. Yes, you're right. It is dangerous out here in the middle of the night. Yes, you can get killed. Yes. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. You're going to give us 500 rubles, and we're going to give you a ride halfway to where you need to go. And then we're going to give you 100 back. And for that money, you can hitchhike your way back home, no problem. <laughs> yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> so I give them the 500 rubles. They give us a ride halfway to where we need to go. They give me 100 back. For 80 rubles, Dad and I are able to get ourselves home safe and sound, although he was still terrified. And after that, never ever in my life had I been faced with corruption so blunt and obvious right in my face. But I could only hope that if I ever do, I would be dealing with people generous and kind like the two corrupt Russian cops. <laughs> When things are going wrong for us, we can only hope our antagonists are all so reasonable. Gina has been a member of Hong Kong Stories for many years now and has told many wonderful stories. She started telling stories in the same way as everyone else does, by coming to a workshop. Have a look at our website at hongkongstories.com for more information on how you can get involved too. And if you like what you heard, you can leave us a review on iTunes, like this review from Luna Rider 2. Discovered this podcast after seeing the Hong Kong stories performed live in Hong Kong. It's great entertainment for your daily commute, or to keep you finishing a workout. Like listening to a good friend, who's a really good storyteller, tell a funny or poignant story about their life. And for your second story today, we'll once again be traveling to Russia, but this time we'll be going by train. From our May 2017 show, 24-7, here is Hillary. If a train leaves Irkutsk, Russia, at 6.28 p.m. on a Saturday, headed west at a speed of 50 miles per hour, en route to Ekaterinburg, traveling backward in time across five time zones, mind you stopping about 15 times with most stops lasting about 10 minutes and a few of them lasting about an hour. What time of what day will it be when the train arrives in Ekaterinburg? Anyone? Anyone? I don't know either. <laughs> We're on the Trans-Siberian Railroad making the 5,000-mile-long journey from Beijing, China, to St. Petersburg, Russia. On a narrow bunk below me is Megan. Megan's a high school science teacher, and her scientific prowess is put to good use keeping track of all of our passports and a very sophisticated running tally of who has spent what in what currency 
Chinese, Mongolian, and Russian. Across from Megan, a mere 20 inches away, is Lucy. Lucy's a high school English teacher, and she's dutifully reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment <laughs> along the journey. Above Lucy is Gina. Gina's also a high school English teacher, and she's reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Across from Gina and above Megan is me. And I'm the only idiot who didn't bring an e-reader of sorts. Instead, I have lugged aboard three heavy monocle magazines, one audible version of Anna Karenina, which I didn't download properly, so I only have two chapters, and the book The Big Red Train Ride by Eric Newby, a British journalist who made the same Trans-Siberian railway trip, railway trip in the 1970s. But I'm having trouble connecting to, the, to his story because he made his trip in winter, and currently it's mid-June. Also, he started in Moscow, going east toward Vladivostok, and we are headed west, and at the moment, in the middle of Siberia. Yesterday, at 6.28 p.m., we left Irkutsk, a city in Russia. We're meant to be on the train two full days and about 2,000 miles until we arrive at our next stop at Katerinburg, still in Russia. Passing time in train life, as opposed to airplane life, is very flexible. I can sit, stand, walk whenever I like. All I have to do is gingerly sit up on my top bunk so as not to hit my head on the little shelf above me, and then carefully find the foothold, which serves as a sort of ladder to get down. And I do have to make sure not to step on Megan's legs because I have to use her bottom bunk as part of my ladder system to get down. Once I'm on the floor, I can turn a full 360 degrees between Megan and Lucy's bunks. One way to pass the time was to take a walk. Our walks only had one destination, the dining car. To get there, we would traverse through eight other train carriages, dodge 20 sets of Russian men's feet dangling from upper bunks along the way, and carefully not squash the smoking Russians who are gathered in the vestibule sections that link one carriage to the next. This is such an effortless journey that we only do it once a day. I'm getting restless, and I'm starting to panic that I could run out of entertainment long before we reach Ekaterinburg. I'll have a snack. I think it's lunchtime anyway. Oh, that's right. Later today, there's going to be a long stop where we can actually get off the train and stretch our legs. The stop should last about 45 minutes. According to the guidebook, the stop should happen at about 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon. But is that 2.30 local time or 2.30 Moscow time? Because all the trains run on Moscow time, no matter where you are in Russia. Since I have to ration the last bits of reading and listening entertainment I have, I'm going to put my mind to better use and figure out what time it is. My watch is set to Irkutsk time, but that was yesterday. The trains don't have internet, so our phones don't automatically update. I have a plan. Gina and I have nearly mastered the Russian alphabet. The next station we pull into, she and I will valiantly try to read the station name, then go down the hall and check the schedule that's posted in the hallway, figure out which station we have just left, figure out what time it was when we left, and then figure out how many more stops there are to go until the long stop and ultimately at Katerinburg. A station is coming. 
After a few lazy afternoons of me studying the Russian alphabet in our guidebook and Gina making actual flashcards, together we can fluently read Russian at the speed of a kindergartner reading words for the first time. Okay, here we go. It's two words. I only focused on the second word, and sadly, so did Gina. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have our strategy worked out yet. Okay. Stantsia. Wait, isn't that the same second word from the previous station? Oh, God. We've just sounded out the word station. The station name had two words, the town name and station. We've missed the town name. <laughs> Never mind. I'm just going to eat something and take a nap instead. When I wake up from my nap, I'm expecting and hoping to see something different, something as a marker of time having gone by, a mountain perhaps, a clearing in the dense birch trees, a different style of wooden Siberian house in the distance. No, it all looks exactly the same as when I fell asleep. Even the daylight is the same. I mean, it's mid-June. It's almost the longest day of sunlight of the year. And since we're traveling backward across the time zones, we're literally going back in time. It's like the slow speed of the train is equal to the slow speed of the sun, making it plausible that we're not moving at all. Is time even going by? When are we going to get there? Somewhere, anywhere, the long stop, Ekaterinburg. When are we going to get off this train? Eventually, the long stop comes and goes. I don't know what time it was, local time, Moscow time, but it felt in my bones like it was about 5 p.m. Our walk to the dining car comes and goes. We're still not to the destination. Dinner conversation takes a melancholy turn as we start to brainstorm all the things we're going to do when we arrive in Ekaterinburg. I'm just excited to go to the bathroom at my own free will, rather than strategically timing my urinations according to the train schedule of when the bathroom is unlocked. As evening becomes nighttime, I try once more to read my train book. But I'm still struggling with the author's descriptions of Western Russian cities and all the snow he sees out the window. I'm not in the West yet, and there's no snow in June. As my train gets nearer and nearer to Ekaterinburg in real life, so does his train in the book. I'm going to quit the book. I don't need to read on, because the book is going to go on to describe Siberia, the region I have just left. Arriving in Ekaterinburg symbolizes the crossing from the Asian side of Russia to the European side of Russia. I'm moving on. And my train is stopping, finally. After a long day of this battle, ladies versus time, in the end, time, or rather the train schedule won. We were defeated, and we looked it too. We had been on the train for 48 real travel hours plus three hours of time zone change, plus the long stops, two or three hours, give or take, plus the short stops, increments of 10 minutes, about 10 times a day. We had been on the train for 57 hours. We had moved. Hours had passed. But time really did stand still. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this story brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. We would also like to thank Janita, who curated and directed our November 2018 show and the May 2017 show, too. We appreciate all the work you do. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.